Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the 14th episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In this Wolf Moon episode, we'll be interviewing Latham Thomas, soulful doula, self-care sorceress, and founder of Mama Glow. Then, I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Dollars Want Me by Henry Harrison Brown. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for surrender and letting go. But first, let's talk about my own journey with letting go of things and people who don't serve me. It's the first full moon of 2022, and this full moon is called the Wolf Moon. Apparently, because this was a time when wolves used to howl at night to mark territory and to find other pack members. And apparently the spiritual meaning of this wolf moon is that it's a time for transformation and introspection. I must be honest that I don't usually look at each individual full moon for its message, but I have a generic full moon ritual that I've been developing over the years. I first started becoming interested in the full moon when I lived in a penthouse apartment and I couldn't ignore the the sight of this huge moon in the sky. It was incredible. I used to leave my bedroom blinds up so I could be caressed by the moonlight as I slept. I found it was like a blessing. And then when I got into crystals, I used to leave my crystals outside and then I started having cacao and just really having a self-love kind of ritual. But then I learned that a full moon is actually all about letting go of things that no longer serve us, which also kind of ties me into the interview today with Latham Thomas. I read her book, Own Your Glow, which is a very, very complete book about glowing in all areas of life. And one area that really struck a chord with me was about going through all your old handbags and digging out all the all the crap at the bottom of them, like such as old receipts and blah, 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 and just throw everything out. And also to get rid of those granny pants, which is something I need to do actually, because um, I've been, um, well, I'm recently single and I'm I'm at the kind of kissing frog stage before finding my next prince. I do I do think that my underwear does need a kind of revamp. So I, I think it needs to be out with the old and in with the new and really get I mean I'm gonna start getting rid of some old pieces of lingerie that no longer serve me. So that's the uh, the idea behind the full moon. But also it's interesting to think about other things that don't serve you, such as habits or even people. For me, I'm trying to overcome my habit of messiness and I clean my kitchen every night. I'm taking the rubbish down more often and I'm I'm really trying to overcome that kind of side of me and make my bed every morning. And yes, I'm adopting 
new healthier habits and out with the the messy me of the past. And also it's interesting to think about getting rid of people who no longer serve you. I've had um, lots of, um, how would I say it, recycled friendships or uh, friendships that, that haven't lasted over the years, which sometimes it makes me sad, but other times I think but it's just a reflection of my evolution. For example, I've been in Barcelona now for many a long, long, long time. I only have one friend who's been a friend through that throughout that the whole time I've been here. And the others have kind of came and went. And also, and sometimes I can feel I, I don't really miss a lot of them, to be honest, because I think sometimes they kind of um, serve their purpose, had great times, I wish them well, and, and then they are kind of like no longer in my life. But sometimes I do feel lonely and I feel that I, I would like a kind of um, a group of people who have been by my side the whole time. But I've been changing so much that would be kind of maybe a lot to expect from someone. And one thing that I always do put in my wish list is to have a family of friends. I think that's a really beautiful thing to aspire to in life, to have a group of friends who are like your family and they support you, whatever, and um, and you support them in return as well. But they have to be people who really do uplift you, understand you and stimulate you and really want the best for you. Because obviously in, in my life, um, I have gone through lots of changes, for example, giving up alcohol and really following a kind of more healthy lifestyle path. And that's not for everyone. Some people can feel that you've become boring or maybe they just don't, they're just not on the same vibe as you at all. So sometimes I feel um, that I have not been very maybe honest to some people in my life about the fact that I didn't want them in my life ever, um, um, anymore, and I've been a bit of a, um, a bit of a coward, really. And I'm, I have been known to be a bit of a ghoster, which uh, I know, I'm, I know that sounds really bad, but sometimes I just feel like I don't have the um, the balls to kind of say to someone, "Hey, this really bothers me about you, and I don't really want you in my life anymore." Um, I just tend to kind of um, do a slow fade out of someone's life and just become busy and just not really available and not really write back to them. And um, that might seem like a very cowardly way to do it, but it just kind of feels natural to me sometimes. And um, the way I see it is that if it's someone that you um, want in your life, then it's a good idea to be honest with them and talk to them. But when it's someone who just gives you a bad vibe, I just think, oh, I, I can just do without. I don't want any more interactions than what are necessary with that, with that person. One way I kind of, my thermometer of it would be imagining someone's name appearing on your phone because they're phoning you. What is your reaction? Is it, yes, I'm going to pick up right now. I, I'm, I've, I can't wait to speak to this person. Or is it full of dread? And when it's full of dread, I think that's a kind of... Um, um, a sign that that person might shouldn't may, maybe not be in your life. And also I've had um, lots of people judging me with my job over the years, um, really with written, real negative judgment because they were projecting their own ideas about sexuality onto me. And um, I know in some cases they might be looking out for me. They might have good intentions, but I've maybe taken it the wrong way. And um, yeah, I just didn't feel very comfortable around those people anymore. And I did explain, but um, in, in the cases that I was most sad about, but but it's all good now in the end. It's, it's kind of like brought new people into my life. Because I mean, when I explain to people that I design sex toys and I test sex toys, um, 
two things can happen. Someone can become very shocked and make a lot of assumptions about me and my life and my sexuality. But other times, most of the time, actually, people open up to me about their about their secrets and their sex life. And they tell me things that they haven't told their partner or their best friend. And that, that makes me feel very honored and privileged. And that's um it's a great thing to to have that that skill or, or that kind of attribute. That's something that's gonna really help others open up. And I really feel that that's um something to be proud of. But there is a process that I have done a few times to kind of um um how would I say um not ghost people but to have to kind of like eliminate people from my life in the nicest possible way and, and especially energetically. Because one thing is um, not spending time with people, but sometimes they can be spending time in your thoughts and that's that's not a good thing to do. I remember someone um, who was very close to me did really hurt me with some some comments about my about my lifestyle. And, um, and it was just, it wasn't just one time, it was over and over and over. And I tried to explain myself and I just felt that I was kind of giving or defending myself. I didn't really feel like I had to. It was a, it's a very strange situation. Anyways, what I did with this person was I did this uh, ritual called cutting cords and it's kind of um, a spiritual ritual. And I highly recommend it to anyone who is, who feels that someone is, is spending too much time in your thoughts or something you're thinking about someone in a negative way too much. For example, what you would do is you would close your eyes. Well, this is one way of doing it. There are many ways of doing it, but for example, you could close your eyes and imagine that person and imagine there is this kind of invisible cord between you and them. And then with your hands, you make these kind of you do this thing kind of like with scissors, imagining your fingers are scissors and you just keep chopping and chopping that cord and you do it for a while, but you must always send love and gratitude to that person. Because often in, in life, people who teach you the most valuable lessons are the people who kind of like maybe rub you up the wrong way, you know, rather than the people who support you, which is a bit, a bit strange. But sometimes we, I do believe that everyone in our lives is our teachers, especially the ones who, who provoke a, a negative reaction in you. So anyway, you just let go of any resentment and just cut, 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 cut until you feel that that cord is cut. And I, when, whenever I've done this, I've found that I've thought less about that person and they have, and when I, whenever I have thought about them or they've, I've seen them on social media or whatever, then I don't have such a negative reaction anymore. It's more neutral and just wishing them well, but they're, um, we're in different spaces now and they just don't bother me anymore. And that's kind of a nice thing to do, I think, anyway. So anyway, so getting rid of the old and in with the new. And someone asked me recently as well if I did um, New Year's resolutions. And I don't do that. I think it's a lot to ask to try and kind of have a new habit for a whole year. But for me, I like to do my kind of intentions and re re resolutions or whatever, or letting go with every moon cycle. So new moon is about manifestation and then uh, a full moon is about letting go of things that no longer serve you. And to do that every month, I think is, is quite nice because my concerns in January might not be the same as the ones in December. Well, let's hope not anyway. And there we have it. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Latham Thomas, soulful doula, self-care sorceress, and founder of Mama Glow. 
Okay, Latham, Thomas, welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. And thank you so much for taking part in this interview today. I'm very happy to have you here. You are a master birth doula. For those who are unaware of this term, what does it mean? And how does how can they not be confused with midwives? What's the difference? That's a great question. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, so uh, doulas and midwives um, for a very long time have been uh, conflated to be to be able to deliver the same uh, services. Um, the main difference is that midwives are clinicians. They provide clinical support to clients um, in the form of uh, pregnancy support and delivery and postpartum support. Um, that looks uh, generally like birth at home in birth center settings and sometimes in hospitals where midwives um, deliver as well. Um, doulas are non-clinical providers, right? So providing emotional support, physical support, education, advocacy tools. They also support partners. Um, if there's partners present to make sure that they have the skills and supports they need to adequately show up to meet the needs of their um, partners during the birth process. Um, they're also really fierce advocates, so really helping people to navigate the terrain of what it looks like for, for birth, um, regardless of the space they're delivering, um, especially inside of hospital systems where there's a lot of policy and um, rules that can impact birth outcomes. And uh, doulas help people sort of um, decode, really, that terrain and better understand how to navigate it to meet their needs. Um, while making sure to have the best experience possible, regardless of outcome. So has this um, profession been affected by COVID and um, people's like rules and hospitals and stuff? Yeah, there's been a lot of um, waves of change, I would say, from the very beginning. Um, I would say in March of 2020, what we saw was a shift where a lot of institutions were minimizing the amount of people who could be present at a birth. And so what that looked like was um, people um, not being able to have sometimes their partner delivering with them. In some cases, it meant that if you did have a doula present that, um, or if you had contracted a doula rather, that they could not be present uh, for the birth. Um, and that meant that for many people who say you hired someone and you were anticipating be able, being able to have their support um, for your birth that was happening um, March, April, May, June, there was this really interesting um, period where people didn't know what it would look like for support internally. The rules were changing quite frequently. Um, really like weekly, the rules would change based on um, the information that was provided by um, CDC and global health professionals um, regarding uh, COVID-19. And so um, as a result, a, a lot of people decided to birth outside of the hospital. Um, a lot of people, you know, were interested in working within birth centers. A lot of people were interested in working with, um, you know, people in home birth situations as well. So it was a really, um, you know, stressful time for many people who were, you know, in this process. And I would say for the doulas, it was also really stressful because for people who've been working with a client for their entire pregnancy to be told that they couldn't be there for the delivery um, meant that people had to get really um really 
uh, have some ingenuity, right, in approaching the process. So what that looked like for many people was um, shifting to virtual support. Um, a lot of hospitals um, sort of created a more leniency around the rules that they had regarding um, digital presence. So they had some of these little um, uh stands for iPads that could allow you to see your um, support on the other side. So if you had a doula or other family member on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever the technology would be, um, they opened up their broadband so that people could essentially have that support inside. Um, and usually um, you're not allowed to have filming um, throughout labor. So this is one thing that a lot of institutions became more lenient with just to allow some space for folks to have the support that they desired. But it's not enough. You know, the doula support that is um, is very hands-on. Um, it's very patient-centric. Um, it's very, um, you know, individual. And um, if you can imagine, you know, delivering in a pandemic would be stressful for anyone entering into a hospital where, by the way, um, hospitals were very truthful that they were under, um, under supported in, in terms of their uh, ability or, or really um, like incapable in some ways of meeting the demands of, of everyone because they were dealing with ex an expanding uh, unit for COVID patients, um, you know, a tapped out ICU. And so a lot of space had to be allocated to um, meeting the needs of uh, patients that were on um, venting. And so delivering in a hospital felt really precarious for many people. And um, there was an uproar around the um, exclusion of doulas um, in New York State, for instance. There was uh, huge petitioning, and after a week of this um, mandate being put into place, the governor of New York at the time actually um, instituted an executive order to reverse so that hospitals had to immediately let let the um, support back into the hospital so you could you could have your partner there. And um, at that point, they were excluding partners and doulas. And at this point, they were letting partners back in. And then as the numbers decreased um, in terms of um, COVID patients, then doulas were gradually entering back into the hospitals. So, um, and State by state, it was different, and obviously globally, it's been different, you know, for, for every um, country and, and how they're approaching the process. But, um, you know, when, when it comes to public health, you know, this is uh, this time that we've been living through is one where we've really been able to see the cracks in our systems. Absolutely. And I have a couple, I'm here in Spain and I have a couple of friends who've given birth during this process and they had to give birth wearing a face mask, which sounds very stressful, especially doing the kind of breathing you would need to do to deliver a baby. Is that the same in the States? Oh my gosh, absolutely. The stress of that. Early on, yes, people had to be masked during labor. Um, now, everyone else that is in the room uh, wears a mask and the pregnant person does not. So they can choose to have one, but most people are obviously so much more comfortable without. So, um, but everyone else in the room is, is, is masked. Yeah. So more specifically during the labor, what does the doula do? Is it kind of like calming down the, the mother and, and maybe doing breathing exercises? What are the typical doula tasks, let's say? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is uh, comfort measures to help people navigate the discomfort they may be feeling, um, you know, with the uh, increasing sensations of the contractions. Um, So uh, there's a lot of non-pharmaceutical measures that are employed to sort of, you know, help people. um, Sometimes it's to distract them. Sometimes it's to help alleviate pain. There's uh, counter pressure, pressure points. Um, massage techniques, there's, um, you know, visualization, breathing, obviously, as you already mentioned, um, you know, movement, sometimes like getting someone out of the bed and slow dancing with them or taking a walk around the hallways. Sometimes when folks are sort of in this latent stage of labor, like not not far enough to like admit to the hospital, I guess, but not um, not enough to go back home, maybe like walking through a park together and sort of like allowing the baby to sort of rest against the cervix and kind of get um, labor moving. That's something that might happen. Um, but really helping people to navigate like on a case by case and moment to moment basis, sort of what would be the best course of action next and helping to interpret the information that comes through um, their their care team, right? So if some information comes through that, you know, you're not really certain about or, or need some time to think about, it's really helping to like create the space for you to have the time to consider, um, you know, what's been presented in terms of information, um, gather the, the necessary information to, to um, be able to consent to that procedure or treatment, um, you know, really being able to use your voice, you know, to speak up for your needs. Um, that is something that is learned throughout the pregnancy, but certainly something that we practice throughout the, um, the labor. Um, and, and really sort of uh, protecting, it's really not just, you know, um, breathing, but it's, it's protecting the experience for the client, right? So it's like, if you think about, um, a wedding planner and what they do, there's so many things that make that day uh, special and go off like, you know, uh, seamlessly that nobody has to think about that the wedding planner is thinking about. Right. And so in, in a similar fashion, there's many things that uh, are considerations in the birth process that are uh, emotionally um, connective for that individual or that couple, and uh, and we're making those considerations. We're we're the ones thinking about like you know how will they recall this experience you know, um, and I'm concerned about the memory that you have in the birth process. So um, it's about setting the mood for the room. It's about making sure that it's an inviting space. It's about you know um, sort of. Um, helping to create a, a flow of energy and and a connectivity of the individuals who are part of the birth team. Um, it's about, um, you know, making sure that like, yeah, between each contraction, you have a sip of water and maybe you need some chapstick or maybe you need your hair braided, like whatever those things are, right? Being able to anticipate the needs more than anything else it's that, right? So do you think it's, it's an advantage to already be a mother to be a doula? Do you think it's a, an advantage that the, the doula would understand the process of pregnancy and childbirth? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because um, no one ever asks men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if um, if they feel, you know, uh, suited to like serve uh, at deliveries and if they, you know, because they've never experienced it, right? I mean, you know, if we're talking about gender, obviously there's like differences there, but, you know, in terms of sex, you know, people born as, um, male who have male, uh, sex organs are not going to experience, um, pregnancy and delivery. Right. And so, 
but nobody will ever say like, you know, this person is, is not suitable to, to sort of like guide me through this process as a doctor who's never experienced it. But yet, you know, people who are on this path may have the same anatomy, right? But maybe not have had the same experiences will feel inadequate. <laughs> and, yeah. and so it's really interesting, right, that we even do that. But that also shows up in so many other areas professionally, right? When you think about women who, who will always underestimate their, their skill sets while men will always overtout theirs. So um, I, I don't necessarily think it's, um, I, I wouldn't, I guess, use the words advantages, but I would say that um, we all have um, within us um, this cellular memory and recall, right? So even if I haven't had a physical or visceral experience through my body um, that, uh, that, that we would, you know, um, uh, define as a major life event of, you know, having delivered a baby, even if I haven't done that, there is um, a, a knowledge and a recall that's like more collective around that process, right? So I do know what it's like to support somebody because um, before me, many women have done it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm part of a lineage of people who have done this work already. So I do have encoded in me a certain um, uh, ancestral knowledge base around this work, right? Like all of us do. And so, um, and we evolved actually supporting each other through this process, right? And this is really, you know, um, if we think about professions, the oldest of professions is actually midwifery. And so um, this has been happening since the beginning of time. We've been supporting each other since the beginning of time. And and so it for many people, when they come to this work, they feel like, oh, I feel at home or something feels like I some, somehow I know this, but they don't know why. Well, it's not necessarily because they experienced it through their bodies, but because they, they feel connected to this ancestral wisdom that they sort of find their way to tap into as they initiate into birth work. And so so while you can be more informed um, in terms of like how your body uh, recollects the process, right? I had a son 18 years ago. Um, I know what it feels like in my body. But even, you know, without that, there are amazing doulas in our community who have never given birth. Um, you know, we have um, one of our doulas who was, um, you know, the, the eldest of 11 and um, does not have children has witnessed so many births and been there for so many people and, and feels, um, and it's, 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 by the way, so incredible, you know, in, in terms of a support. And so you, um, you don't have to have had a child to be able to be an incredible doula. Um, just like, you know, you don't have to have had a child to be a great prenatal yoga teacher, right? Like there are just things that, um, you know, there are other qualities I think that are really critical to have um, in terms of your ability to support people that will um, that people are going to uh, I would say attach to right and it's more about like your personality how you make them feel um, you know their their ability to kind of like feel at ease around you all of those things right are going to be um, you know things that um, that make you um, a really great doula in addition to obviously the skills that you have. And so, um, you know, what most people are, are uh, tapping into is, is not whether or not you've, um, you've delivered a baby, but I do think that that can be a hangup for many people. I do think that it can keep people from, from maybe pursuing the path of doing this work because they're like, Oh, I have to have a child first. 
you know, I, I, um, I think that your experience, uh, whatever it is, will inform your work for sure, right? And so we've had many doulas who've had um, blissful birth experiences, home births that were incredible, that informs their work, right? We've had doulas who've had traumatic birth experiences, and that also informs their work. Um, and then we've had doulas who, have, who haven't, you know, had an experience um, around birth at all. And that also, you know, informs their work. Like there's, there's different entry points and, and life experiences that we bring. And, um, and all of that kind of can show up in, in how we support. Um, and, um, and I think it's just important to acknowledge that like everybody starts from someplace, you know, um, and, and how we evolved was watching this process unfold, you know, like we weren't now it's very um, tucked away. It's like on TV or you know, we find it in film, but we don't really get to experience it in, in community like we used to. Like, I mean, before, you know, I would just, like, you would be having a baby. I would roll up, you know, a bunch of us would come and we would cook and we would make a, a birthing tonic for you. And we would set up the delivery room, you know, your bedroom we would set up. We would put sheets down, the linens that would be there for you to give birth. We would change the linens for after you gave birth. We would feed you. We would rub your feet. We would laugh. You know, we would give you a little bit of alcohol to help you relax. Like we would be doing all these things. And then amongst that, we'd be gossiping and, you know, chatting and, you know, and then look, kids would be running around and like, you know, in the same home. Right. And this is how it was. And so, and so, now, if you look at how we've evolved, the modern way of doing things is really about separating from your family, you know, for usually for job access and opportunity. So people are spread out. You're not with your community in the same way. Like our villages are much more spread out. And so now we don't have, you know, those experiences that we once did that really anchored our humanity, right? We don't have like another birth is happening and let's all show up for the ritual, that's not happening in the same way. And because birth is institutionalized, now you see how we strip away all of those magical, ancestral, uh, familial, matrilineal um, pathways of, of expression and of, um, and of, of passing on, right, this, um, this or, or moving, I should say, through this rite of passage, right? A lot of that is missing now because of how we've, how birth has evolved with our, our, with our society. And so a doula can really uh, show up to um, meet some of those gaps that we see in society and, and help us create uh, more ritual around the process. And yeah, whether you've had a baby or not, I, I believe that you're capable of, of being able to help, um, to help reclaim that process. Absolutely. So with Mama Glow, you're really changing the way women think about um, and approach pregnancy. How did this brand and movement begin? What inspired it? Um, well, my son would say that he inspired it, which is true. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, my birth with him, he's, he's 18. He just went off to college. And, you know, when I was pregnant with him, I was living in New York City. And in New York, um, in this time, 18 years ago, really 19, so we're almost talking two decades. If you can think back that far, what we were doing then is completely different to now. There was no social media. There was no, um, not even smartphones. There were texting, I think was 
like available, but not even widely available. Um, and the internet existed, but it wasn't even trusted. Like people were like, this is not here to stay, right? Like we weren't even putting our faith into the internet. We were still sending letters to people, um, what's called snail mail, um, or just like regular letters that come in your mailbox. Um, we were still communicating that way too, right? And not really trusting this email thing. So a lot has happened exponentially in such a short period of time. Now, while I'm talking about, you know, all those technological advances, think about the um, incredible need for access to information that was not also widely available. Um, there were not a lot of websites that were covering birth. There was maybe only three, really, that, that existed. And there were no, like, boutique blogs and websites. Like, that didn't exist yet. So there was only a handful of places you could go to get information. And the sites were ugly and inflexible and really hard to navigate. And, um, and so it was hard to find information. And so the only way you could find it, by the way, was um, getting books from the library or going to Barnes & Noble or whatever the bookstores were at the time. And so that's how I kind of, you know, um, learned was a lot of it was like through reading. Um, I delivered in the birth center on 14th Street in New York City. Um, the place was called Elizabeth Seaton Childbearing Center. And this was the only freestanding birth center in New York, the only freestanding. And what that means is that um, it was not tethered to a hospital or any institution. Um, it had full autonomy and it was run by midwives. And it was an amazing place to deliver. And there was amazing support there. I had a beautiful delivery and um, I emerged from that experience um, that changed my life, but also, you know, walked home like six hours later with a baby and was like, I can't believe they're letting me leave with this child. <laughs> you know, it just felt so like, this is all like, I just go now and I'm a parent. And it was amazing. Um, I did 21 hours of childbirth education with them, which was a prerequisite to deliver there, which I thought was amazing. Also, they did, um, they did this, uh, when you would come in, you would do your, um, your weight and you would actually do a urine sample that you would record yourself and you would put that in your chart. And so you had also access to all your data at any time you could see your files, you would just go grab them. And they gave photocopy of all your records when you finished and, and you completed your postpartum support as well which was amazing. At the time, you know, if you can imagine what it's like to, even now it's difficult, but then it was really difficult to get medical records. You know, you would reach out to a physician and say, hey, I'm transferring my, um, you know, I'm transferring to this hospital or I'm transferring practitioners or I need my records for whatever reason. It was impossible to get your own data, right? It would take like six, eight weeks for you to get your own information which is really like, I mean, criminal if you think about it. And so this was a place where you just had free, free access. It, it was autonomous. It, it felt really good. And so you were sort of learning the principles of, you know, body literacy, bodily autonomy, sovereignty, and really feeling like safe in your body and trusting of your body. And it was also a space where um, they did not have pharmaceuticals. So if you deliver there, like there's nothing 
that they can do. If you feel like you want an epidural, there's nothing that can be done, <laughs> right? Because this is like no drugs, right? So I had this great delivery at one point. I remember um, asking um, this young lady, I was like, hey, is there anything you can do? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, is there anything you can do? And she's like, you're doing so well. And and then probably like an hour later, I was, um, you know, my son, I released him into the world. But um, it was it was really uh, mind-blowing. Um, my ancestors visited me in that birthing experience. It was quite potent and powerful. I was laughing. I was singing. My best friend came. It was beautiful. And I, um, I just remember emerging from that. And 20 minutes after I delivered, I said, nobody said it would be like this. Like, I have to protect this experience. Nobody said it would be like, nobody said my ancestors would come. Nobody said I, I would, you know, ascend out of my body and watch my son be born. I, I had this so out-of-body experience. It was, it was sort of, um, I mean, really something like, uh, I mean, that I feel like you would see on television um, that I that I had and that I didn't actually even feel comfortable sharing because nobody had talked about it in this way. I didn't really know if it was real. And I come to understand what that process was, you know, um, in years of, of studying and, and also science. And, you know, I can, and it's also magical and ethereal, but I'm able to talk about it now, but in time, you know, I, I didn't have context for it, except for that it was magical and mystical and holy. And, and so for me, that was really, I think, you know, one of the launching pads, you know, that I think there was this sort of mandate to, to protect that experience after I had one of being so uh, divinely protected. Um, also, you know, even way before this, when I was four years old, my mother was pregnant uh, with my sister, my aunt was pregnant and my great aunt were all pregnant at the same time, due within a month of each other, March, April, May. And I was fascinated by this at, a, at the age of four years old. And my mother really taught me everything about anatomy. So I learned about reproductive anatomy at that age. I was watching this show called My Mom's Having a Baby, which was on PBS, which is our public, um, you know, public uh, television. And there was so much education that you know, I felt like I correct people. And so in the grocery store, I would tell people, um, you know, this woman came up to me and said, oh, your mother's having um, a baby in her tummy. I said, no, my mother has a baby in her uterus and it's going to come out of her vagina. Oh, so wow. Fascinated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fascinated. Okay. But my mother still bragged about that till this day because it was really like the planting the seeds and creating the rudiments of what will become my work later in life. Right. So I feel like all of this is connected. All of it became sort of a constellation that led me to this day. And my son coming through, you know, having these experiences of like sort of witnessing my mother's pregnancy, my aunt, my great aunt, you know, putting little stuffing little cabbage patch dolls under my shirt and pretending to deliver each other's babies, you know, me and my cousins would do this. That was also something, right? That sort of, um, if I could think back, like reaching back, I can see how that created a map for me for the future and my understanding and, and sort of my path in this direction. So I think that, um, you know, it wasn't like I set out, you know, to do this. I think it was really like, um, you know, it was it was uh, it was a calling more than anything else. I think that um, 
when I talk about this work, I, I feel like the people who show up to do it, it's not a hobby for them. It is not something they desire to do most of the time. It's this deep sense of, um, of uh, com- being compelled to do it. And that's what it was for me. Like I felt called and I answered the call to do it. And, um, and, and I felt like I had to be obedient to that call. And, and so every day I show up to, you know, support others, but primarily a student, a global student body, you know, that is seeking to uh, support um, pregnant and birthing people and postpartum individuals. Right. So I've, I've just really, um, you know, the work has evolved from just, you know, me being a solo doula, which it was in the beginning, to, you know, an organization and, you know, matching doulas and families to doing work, you know, with all types of people. Um, but I, um, I think that it really was uh, that call of just answering, you know, and, and listening. And so for anyone who is listening, that if you feel something in your heart like that, that you feel is, is tugging you and, and compelling you and you feel like you're being pulled in a certain direction. It's so important to listen to that and actually to allow yourself to walk that path, whatever that is, to walk that path, to, to let it unhold. Right. Because that is a birth in and of itself. Like that is a journey that like allows us to be and engage with the, um, this visceral thing that's moving through us, this, this, this thing that is bringing, uh, life force energy, this thing that is taking us on a journey in our own lives. And so we enter into our own rites of passage and, 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 um, emerge on the other side to be born when we take these paths. And so, um, you know, as we talk about, you know, like, you know, from your lens of, you know, of orgasm and of, and of this, the complexity of, of what the experience of life is. I believe that, you know, when we're pulled in these directions, you know, the culminating, um, the culminating experience, right. Which is, you know, what we would in, in intimacy and, um, and sexual health, we would equate to orgasm like that is like the, the fullest expression, you know, being in your fullest expression, like following that thing. And so for me, the calling was, was for me to listen to it. You know, I, I felt it, I listened, I followed, and now I can sort of live into this fully expressed version of myself, right. That feels alive when I do the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. And so part of it also takes uh, commitment and obedience. And so, literally I just listen. I listen to what I'm supposed to do. I'm listening to spirit. I'm listening to what I'm supposed to do. And I just continue to do what I'm supposed to do. So more so I would say it's me, you know, kind of, um, living into, uh, the, the map that's, that's in place for me rather than, um, me sort of trying to, um, pull and, flex and push and like, I'm really just trying to be uh, soft and ride the wave and, and just follow like the path that's like unfolding. And, and I feel like, you know, that's really what we do when we're in labor as well. Right. That's really what we do when we're in moments of intimacy, we ride the wave and, and, and if we can be like that more in our lives, right. More relaxed, more soft and supple and open, um, then it's easier to, I think, lean into the task, right, of answering a call like this, because it's, by the way, it's inconvenient, it's not always comfortable, but, but when we can um, accept that this is what we're supposed to be doing, and, that, and that's what I had to do for myself, 
then it's like there's rewards, you know, when, when we are courageous, I believe that the universe will reward that courage. Absolutely. I totally agree with that because I am, um, I come from a very Catholic family and I had the calling to come, you know, work in a female orgasm and design sex toys and stuff. So I, I totally, uh, it's been quite hard, but um, there are rewards when you start listening and uh, choosing and choosing the right path, I think. But speaking of orgasm that you mentioned, I saw on a radio interview that you recommended using a vibrator during labor. Was this to provoke an orgasm or to massage the body? And how can vibrators help? help in childbirth? It's such a great question. I first want to go back to the fact that you also are raised Catholic because I was too. Yeah, I saw that in your book. I'm going to actually uh, <laughs> bought your book, Own Your Glow. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I read that and I thought, yay. <laughs> I so. know, right? It's like, it's interesting because I also feel like I'm kind of recovering from it. But like, because oh, yeah. there were so many things that like we learned that we have to unlearn that. Mm. So I just commend you for to be able to stand up in a, power structure that's that's so powerful like that and be able to center pleasure and be able to um you know center another way that is not um you know about denouncing or turning away from but actually integrating god so so thank you for that because so many of us need reorienting and it's really hard to find um so um so was, back to the orgasm and, and the vibrators <laughs> yeah because I, I read that I thought, I thought it was so cool that having a vibrator yeah. I mean because um, I guess orgasm probably helps with the process I suppose and also for relaxation would that be correct in your, in your yeah view? yeah so it does so a couple of things happen so if we're starting to use it in early labor um what is happening is um, some of the same neural pathways are lighting up um, during arousal as they are during um, early labor, right? So we're finding that like heightened sensation, um, engorgement of the genitals, um, you know, more blood flow to the pelvis, uh, tingling and, and relaxation, deeper breathing, right? Like all of these things like that happen when we are um, in moments of intimacy, whether they're they're partnered or solo. Um, and so what the, um, what the vibrator can do is if someone's like really in their head or really sort of wound up is start to sort of soften and relax them, ease them into a space where they can sort of shut off the neocortex mm-hmm. and move into sort of the limbic system, like our emotional motor system and, and kind of turn on the, the pleasure pathways. And so um, pain and pleasure run sort of side by side, right? But, you know, we sort of shut off one so that we can experience the other, right? And sometimes there's a fine line where something feels good, but also slightly painful and vice versa. And so um, what what it can do when we're if, like, so if you're at the very tail end and of your laboring process and you introduce a vibrator, it kind of doesn't, it's not helpful. Earlier on, like getting ahead of the pain so, so like slowly riding the wave as it builds will help to decrease the intensity of the, not, it doesn't decrease the intensity, but the way that you actually feel it, right? So it kind of can shut down some of the uh, intense pain. You're still experiencing the, um, the intensity of, uh, of force, but you don't necessarily feel the intensity of that force on your body because the vibrator helps to turn that into actual pleasure. So it's pretty amazing. Um, and 
it can be done. Like I like people to bring also like, um, you know, I'll say like, you know, bring a swimsuit <laughs> to partner, say bring a swimsuit so that you guys can get in the shower together or, you know, um, go in the bathroom, turn on the music, shut off the lights. I'll lock the door, turn the music really loud and then just see, just play in there with it by yourself, whatever. Um, you know, sometimes we'll have it used externally for nipple stimulation um, because nipple stimulation can, um, the nipples are hardwired to the uterus. So that'll help to neurologically hardwired. So when you stimulate the, uh, the nipples, um, that'll also increase uterine contractions. So sometimes, you know, people will use them, you know, for nipple play. Um, but generally it's to um, work on the clitoral hood, clitoral um, legs, and um, crown probably for most people, but um, in and around in the vestibular bulbs, like all of the sort of external vulva tissue um, to, to help create, uh, create more sensation and relaxation in the body, like you had mentioned. Um, not necessarily to like get to, um, you know, orgasm, but really more to kind of move into a state of arousal and relaxation. And so, um, but you can, I mean, some people do like, you know, have full on making out sessions and pleasure and they're good. If they're at home, especially it's more comfortable. And if the waters haven't broken, so if the amniotic sac is still intact, then some people on, you know, early labor, you know, may feel, um, you know, interested in intimacy. Most don't, but some people could go into, you know, having um, full on sex that they would like, but most people it's just playing like externally and using the toys externally. Um, and not really uh, using the toys to penetrate or anything like that, but but mostly external play. So, um, but any any combination of things is amazing, right? Like what whoever like whatever feels good. It's like we encourage people to um, you know have a pleasure um, have a pleasure vocabulary and not just when it's time to deliver, but like throughout the pregnancy. Um, there was one point where um, there was a, um, there's a store no longer exists in New York that, um, all of my clients would go and they would go at a certain point of pregnancy and people would be like, did Latham Thomas send you here? Because at a certain <laughs> point, so many people would go and they would be asking for the same thing. And, um, and it was this particular toy or whatever. And they were like, Oh my God, I love it. And so I was like, all right, we'll go here. This is where they have it. And this is before you can get stuff mailed to you. There's all these amazing companies now, right. That have, um, you know, different types of toys. There's a toy for every type of body. And, you know, so there's, there's great things that were not accessible years ago. And I'm just so thankful for all of the strides, you know, that people like you are taking to help people take back their pleasure. So that is what we're doing. Would you, would you recommend a wand massager? Cause it's got like a bigger head so it can um, stimulate the whole, or, or cause they have a lot, they have longer handles as well, obviously with the belly in, in the way that could be an obstacle. Do you think? That could be helpful. I mean, I think it really depends on the person and or couple and sort of, you know, like I like people to play with stuff throughout pregnancy so they can figure out like what feels good because as like you're indicating, the body changes, right? So it's harder to reach in certain ways for with certain types of toys or you can't see or, but, um, but th if there is partner play, then there are toys that the partner may prefer too, that they're like really better at using that like, oh, I like when you use this toy or, so I, I really encourage people to like, you know, either whether it's going online or going to a shop together and kind of like, you know, kind of 
having fun, boosting mood and doing sexy things together like that and getting excited about like, you know, how they can utilize toys um, and bring them into the bedroom. Because by the way, many people have a decreased sex drive um, once they get pregnant and do not desire intimacy, don't even desire to be touched, right? And so there's there's ways that we can help to um, increase intimacy, support connectivity, um, you know, help to reduce the pleasure gap by, you know, bringing folks into the fold to get to know their bodies, these different bodies that are ever changing and, and come into relation to right relationship with their changing body and then be able to invite their partner in if they have a partner to help you know, explore what pleasure looks like at this phase of pregnancy. What does pleasure feel like when my body's like this and my butt is like this and my breasts are like this? And like, it's a different, like I would never, ever again have a belly, a behind and breast like I did then, right? It's a completely different body. And and by the way, so many um, partners are like turned on by the changes in the body, but then like we're so self-critical and all these things. So sometimes we don't have the, we don't get to the place where we need to get um, out of our heads, right. To kind of really be able to submit to the sensations that like in any other time would overcome us and and lead us down a, a pleasure pathway. So, so I encourage like, if, like, so if a wand works awesome, if it doesn't, like that doesn't mean that this isn't something for you to explore, right. It does mean that, like you need to find what is the best, you know, tool or pathway for you. And maybe it's like not using toys at all. Maybe like, you know, your fingers and other things are great. But I do find that, you know, um, hands get tired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so having devices is really great. And then finding ones, you know, that that speak to you and like talking to folks, like asking, like reading their ratings are always great. I think there's great um uh, what do you call them? Like tutorials on like YouTube as well as on Instagram about different toys and what they do. And so like looking, looking just to see sort of what people are saying about certain products too. And, you know, like maybe trying a few things, right? So maybe getting, you know, like maybe in a month's time, you try two different things, right? And then just see and like, oh, I love this or I don't love this. Or maybe one of you loves, then that's you guys, that's one of your things. But maybe there's one that you both really love. And maybe that's the one that comes to the hospital, right? So so figuring out is not something we want to, like figuring out what toy to use, you know, sort of as we're moving into, from latent into like, you know, like sort of early active labor. We don't want to be trying on for size our, our sex toy for the first time, right? We yeah. want to really get familiar and build that um, that pleasure muscle, but also sort of build up our proficiency and our comfort level way ahead so that when we do get to the hospital, it's something that we can feel comfortable with because the setting is different, mm. right? That we can feel comfortable, you know, um, like it's something that does feel familiar, right? Um, especially in a setting that's not like our, our home where we're as comfortable. So that's, I think, also really important. Um, but, but you know, I think about it like um, when you think about, uh, how do I describe it, um, a, an instrument, right? Like you would never um, go to a concert or recital and be playing your instrument for the first time, right? 
like you would you would practice in advance of that recital, right? You would practice, you would practice with other musicians, you know, if it's like a if it's if it's a solo piece, right? You're practicing usually with a teacher or a, or some sort of support who's, you know, making sure like a mentor or whatever to sort of help give you guidance or your instructor or if you're, you know, in an ensemble, then you're practicing amongst other people, right? To make sure that when it's time, like you can play your instrument well and you can actually make music, right? Not like cacophony. So similarly, right? Similarly here, we want to practice playing our instrument, right? And so sexually speaking, um, we want to practice playing, we want to know how to play our own instrument, obviously before a partner shows up, when we're in partnership, as our body's changing during pregnancy, we want to practice playing our instrument, right? That's changing. There's obviously so many physiological changes that the body undergoes that sensitivity changes as well and pleasure changes and our pleasure compass will change. So you want to continue to practice your instrument. And then, you know, when we're bringing toys in, that's like on that on that arc of, you know, moving through second and third trimesters, that's a really good time to start figuring out like, you know, um, what toys will work, what feels good, what this doesn't feel good anymore. Now my belly's over here. That doesn't feel good, right? Like just playing around and getting, you know, experimenting. And then when you get to that place and it's time and it's game on and it's showtime, right? It's labor. We're heading in. The baby is coming. Now we can play our instruments, right? Now we can do, you know, some of the pleasure practices that we've been engaging in to, to have fun at home. We can bring into the delivery room and feel, um, feel adept and not feel inadequate because we have like, a, you know, um, we had that background of doing it. And so we can feel comfortable and engaging. Great. So as a sex toy reviewer myself, I've also reviewed many pelvic floor devices and, mm-hmm. the, and it's incredible. I've, I've learned so much about the pelvic floor and some things, I, I just believe that many women are not as aware of um, how pregnancy and childbirth affects the pelvic floor. And, um, and so many women have suffer from prolapse afterwards. It's something that's not really discussed until after you've gone through the process. And that's, that's what it's like anyway in, in the UK. Um, so what, what do you think about that? How is it in America? Do you think women are taught enough about the importance of having a strong pelvic floor? Absolutely not. I think that we don't focus at all enough on the pelvic floor. I mean, first of all, I don't think most um, women in the United States even know what the pelvic floor is. So, um, We've not done a great job in making sure that there is an understanding or an education around um, the female erectile network. Um, there's a, there's a big focus on sort of the reproductive system, right? And so what people learn about are our reproductive organs and, um, and it sort of stops at the uterus, right? And that's it. Like we don't learn about the musculature and the complex, um, you know, bony structures that actually support all of those pelvic organs, (laughs) right? We don't, we don't learn about that. And so um, people don't realize that, you know, from all the activities we engage in, from the types of exercise that's not really designed for women to the, um, you know, the uh, constraints that we sort of fall into of having to go back to work right away, not resting, um, to the birthing positions that we um, end up in, to um, even sometimes, um, you know, sexual positions that aren't good for us. Um, Like, we don't realize how 
uh, were affected. And some people don't even realize that they've had organ prolapse. Um, they'll have discomfort, maybe an intimacy, and, and then they'll start to like maybe talk to their doctor who also is malinformed. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that only the people who are really doing TT work, you know, are, are able to really help folks and not even always them. You know, you have people who are sometimes um, providing instructions to, um, you know, mothers and birthing people afterwards that are like not good instructions for how to care for the pelvic floor and how to heal. Um, you know, this is exacerbated by practices like episiotomy, where there's, um, you know, uh, cutting into whether um, it's a medial cut or a lateral cut into the erectile tissue of the perineum. Wow. And right, which is wow. horrible, so yeah. painful, but also very hard to heal from. And which also, you know, it can be traumatic to the pelvic floor. Um, the birthing positions that we force people to be in can be very traumatic to the pelvic floor and can increase the incidence of tearing um, and and a prolapse in some position in some cases. And also, even the types of breathing and and uh, and the encouraging of, of the pushing, right? The pushing uphill in this kind of very weird way that we position our bodies instead of being upright and, you know, or in a sideline squat or in another way that could open up your pelvis. We're asking people to collapse their pelvis and birth like uphill. So all of these things can, can help, can create trauma to the pelvic floor. And then, but afterwards there's really no um, recovery plan, right? So if you're going to, uh, have people, you know, do something that can cause harm to their body, but um, you, like you have to have like sort of a plan in place to heal, right? And so, there, so you would think that if people understood how harmful this could be, they would also understand what is necessary to to help change it, right? And and or help to uh, recover or impact it. Because we're not having the dialogue about the fact that the ways that we birth, the ways that we, um, you know, cut into people, the way we're not having that dialogue about anything. So there's no, there's no compass, you know, there's no sort of orienting around what it means to like support or heal the pelvic floor, right? Because there's not even a consciousness about the pelvic floor to begin with. So that's where we're starting. And also so many women are suffering in, in silence as well when they have prolapse. They don't really tell anyone, you know, that they kind of suffer for a long time until it gets to quite an advanced stage sometimes before they ask for help. Absolutely. But I think it's also because they don't even understand because they don't have a have an orientation around what prolapse is, right? Mm-hmm. So if I if I'm feeling certain, if I'm feeling my organs lower, but I don't even understand that that's happened, right? I don't I don't even know if that's possible, right? If there's not any discussion, <laughs> and also if there hasn't been any any um, you know discussion with my doctor about like you know what I should do to heal this it's just sort of like well this has happened right like that's kind of sort of what what goes on the doctor will say yeah you have a little bit of prolapse but um you know like a lot of people do and you know you might have incontinence or it's sort of like this acceptance rather than healing right and so that's what needs to happen now is that most of the physicians need training so that they can identify when there's been you know, um, any trauma to the pelvis, any prolapse, um, any organ prolapse, so that they can actually then refer people to a qualified professional, right, that can actually administer support. Because what happens usually is that it stops with the doctor, 
right? Someone says like, yeah, you have this, but you know, there's nothing you can really do or well, it'll heal. Like they'll say things that like kind of sort of take it off the table to the Mm -hmm. clients that, right? You get brushed off. So you don't talk about it anymore. And like you said, you feel silenced, you feel embarrassed, you feel uncomfortable, but you don't know where to go or who to talk to. And then because nobody's talking about it publicly, there's no real discourse around it. There's no spaces to be in with people who are also suffering. Then you don't ever talk about it or address it. Right. So so I, I think that, um, you know, over here, at least, you know, we haven't really seen great strides. I mean, there's a couple programs and, and companies that I would say that have like, you know, educational products out that are to support people, um, but not really languaging around the issue of prolapse, but talking about like some sort of preventative ways. But what happens like your past prevention and it's already occurred, right? Like we need to also have discussions of how to help people who are past that point of prevention and are already in a place where they're desperately in need of help. Um, how is it working for you all over there? Well, I have some friends from France and it's very good there actually, because they have um, some follow-up appointments with a um, physiotherapist. So that's very good in France. And there's an interesting article on the Daily Mail about a British woman who had one baby in England and then one baby in France. And she's comparing the situation. It was really interesting because in England, mm-hmm. no one talks about it. And um, here in Spain, I'm not really sure, but everywhere I was going to mention earlier, but here in Spain where I'm living um, is epidural, epidural all the time. So that's probably not good for the pelvic Mm. floor, not the right angle as well. And um, so, and in my job, I mean, I'm trying all products because I'm also designing products, but it's um, interesting because what I've learned in all my research is that the weighted balls and and stuff like that, it's not very a good idea to keep the um, muscles in constant involuntary tension. It's kind of good to kind of squeeze and relax because the relaxation is also important. And what I found is the best thing is um, are the kind of like app controlled products. There's one called Perifit, mm-hmm. which is amazing. And you, you actually play video games with your vagina and it gives you lots of biofeedback. And I think biofeedback can really be a good motivation to carry on and see how you improve. And um, I have an overactive bladder. I've not had children, but I have an overactive bladder and it really helps me. And um, it's really cool, all these different types of games and, uh, and, and seeing the results. And it's also very important with these products because I also design them is that they, they're always in the same place because that can be an influence. You know, that, you know what I mean? Sometimes you might put it up higher or lower and that really makes a difference in the, the results mm. that you're getting. So um, it's a big world. And I think most of the products that we see are just not really not really appropriate for pelvic floor. And also yoni eggs is a bit of, um, are they safe? Are they not? Are, are they real crystals? There's a lot of controversial um, information about, about yoni eggs as well. So, I mean, I, I would just think a, a non-weighted approach is better in just focusing on the relaxation and, um, and contracting. That's what I've found in my, in my research. In the app that you're talking about? Yeah, I'm going to, uh, it's called Perifit. I'll, um, I'll, I can send you an email with it and it's absolutely amazing. And um, I'm not really into video games, but kind of, uh, it's really <laughs> cool. It's like you're um, a big shark and you have to swallow fish, but you can't swallow something else. So your jaws are like your vagina. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, so it's so, funny. it's so funny. And then there are some moments when something's coming towards you 
and you're supposed to keep your mouth shut and that's supposed to mean relaxation because the relaxation is important. They're all different programs. For example, one is for sexual pleasure. One is for overactive bladder, for example, because there's lots of um, differences in, um, let's say they focus on some short squeezes and some like longer squeezes. So it's really, I think it's really a great method in my, in my opinion. And um, yeah. yeah, I'll send you the link because I mean, I've tried everything and this is like, the best one. It's um, called Perifit. Does it have that you actually insert anything at all? Yes, you do. And you have two sensors and there is an external part. So you know that the external part is always in the same place. So you know that the sensors are always in the same place because there are some products that you're putting them in like a normal pair of Kegel balls, but you don't know if it's always the same height, let's say, because it has to be, you know, because if you, if you wear Kegel balls, usually you're wearing them above the pelvic floor. Whereas these mm-hmm. um, products, they have to be on the pelvic floor. So you can actually, it can sense the squeezing, you know, so it's mm-hmm. a different method. It's not weighted. And, and then you just lie back and you get your phone out and um, play video games. It's, it's so cool. And, and again, and then seeing the graphs, like for example, I did it for three months, but three times a week. And I could really notice that my bladder just felt stronger. And also that affects hip pain, lower back pain. It's, it's really, really, it's so important. And speaking of, actually, mm-hmm. it is amazing. I'm going to send you the link. Um, I read your book, Own Your Glow. I really enjoyed it. I, uh, I just finished reading it this morning, actually. And I found oh, it was a very, yeah, I got it on Sunday and it's like spent the last three days completely like reading it <laughs> with my morning breakfast. And I, f- I found it's a very complete book about self-love and, and it really covers all aspects of life. Whereas most maybe self-help books are focusing on certain areas and ignoring others. For example, sexuality is often mm. ignored. And I liked how you mm-hmm. mentioned um, orgasm. And I'm actually, um, I have quite a glowful life, actually, <laughs> according to your book. I'm um, <laughs> Um, I need to work on a few things. I'm actually vegan as well. I'm whole foods, plant-based, in-season, organic, and all of that. I'm definitely going to be trying your juice. And um, But there are some things that I'm... And also something that I'm, I'm trying to work on at the moment is that I'm, I need to kind of overcome my messiness. I'm trying to work on that. And also what was interesting was the thing about clothes. And um, I think, you know, about having, let's say, investing in nice underwear and wearing nice clothes and, and how your appearance affects you. And I think with the pandemic, people have been at home, you know, wearing sweatpants for so long and, and hoodies and um, and they might have an extra layer of pandemic you know, <laughs> pandemic weight. Yeah. So, so what how, do you have any, any tips for people in that situation? I think lots of people are in that situation. Mm, you're going to get your a, post pandemic glow. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I, um, well, first a few things. One is that, um, you know, I do believe that, you know, you, if you dress for the dreams that you have, that you feel better. Right. And it doesn't mean that you have to go out and spend a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you have to buy a new wardrobe. Um, and, you know, all of us who've been on Zooms, you know, know that like basically your head and shoulders are showing. And so, you know, having a couple of nice blouses, I mean, I realized I was like, oh my gosh, like it's either I have like really dressy or t-shirts or not really like I kind of didn't have stuff that was like really great for like on camera I mean I did but not really a lot of stuff that I felt I could just have like some really beautiful blouses that I could just throw on and um and feel uh radiant right so during the pandemic I invested in getting a couple of new blouses and then um I found a lip color that I fell in love with that 
I was like, I'm going to wear this on all my Zooms. And, you know, and I don't do a ton of makeup. I'm not great at it. So I only can put on what I can. And, and so I did that and a little bit of lip stuff. And, and that just makes me feel confident going into a meeting, um, going into conversation. You know, um, I think that, you know, the sweatpants thing that we all sort of fall into, which is about comfort. Obviously, we're at home. You know, you don't want to be sitting in jeans all day. I get it. Or skinny jeans for that matter, right? Like, I get it. But I do think there's something to be said for actually getting up, showering, getting dressed. And it doesn't mean that you're, I mean, you might even get up, shower, get dressed, and it might be like pajama bottoms on and a blouse on top. That's okay. But I think what's really important is understanding that, you know, there is a, there is a science in clothes cognition, right? Which, which sort of outlines like how we dress and how it makes us feel and also how other people are dressing and what it, and what it makes us perceive about them. And it's not really about like opinion and impressing people so much as it's about understanding like how you perceive yourself, right? So if you're heading into a pretty, a pretty important meeting or presentation and you're just wearing kind of like your pajamas, right? Like it doesn't feel the same as if you would have been able to shower, if you woke up a half an hour earlier, took a shower, you know, was able to like put on your favorite lotion and, you know, maybe your favorite underwear and then like a cool blouse and then maybe have like loungier pants on the bottom. I even got some, um, not like sweatpants, but like sort of more like athleisure lounge type of pants that I thought were also really cute and great for like sitting on a Zoom because sometimes you have to get up and go off screen and come back. And I was like, I don't want to look like I'm in pajamas on the bottom, right? And so although we all know we're kind of like half dressed, it, it there is something to you know, presenting yourself for yourself, not necessarily for other people, but for yourself, right? To feel good and to look radiant. I, I've showed up to some meetings and it was really refreshing because we'd be on camera for many of them. It was really refreshing to see so many of our partners or, or clients or, or folks that we were working with to be dressed and, and like radiant. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, you know, it just is different than, you know, sometimes we're off screen listening to like each other's voices. And it's nice to be able to like see that everybody was, um, you know, putting that effort in. So what my suggestion would be, you know, as we, you know, emerge from this time is to really think about like how we, um, how we navigate this, this time, um, that's, that's very been um, internal and it's been about, um, you know, your uh, relationship with, with self and uh, community and being in a house with your kids and your family and all, like, it's a lot, right? And so the last thing you want to be doing is, you know, feeling like, oh my God, there's another chore that I have to do. But think about like how good it feels, like when you go to get your nails done or you go to get your hair done or you go to get a massage or you take a nice bath, or you just just a shower, like something as simple as like you wake up, you take a shower, you just feel good afterwards, right? So it's really about like the simple um, kind of mundane things that sort of become magical as part of our day, right? And and also can help punctuate our day in a way that we feel, um, you know, good about ourselves, right? So I think about what's, you know, not just what's going to be on screen, but, you know, I, I have a necklace that I always wear that I never take off. And I always have, it's a unicorn. I always wear that. But, you know, I think about like, if I'm in a really important meeting, maybe I'm going to take out a piece of my grandmother's jewelry and I'm going to wear like a big 
chunky necklace with turquoise or, you know, coral in it, like that, you know, that she used to wear, or maybe one of her beautiful scarves or, you know, these are things that I feel like have um, been given to me that have some sort of significance in my life that'll also make me feel or feel like I can evoke the, the energy, right? And so I, I think about how we can, you know, utilize these tools and think about how um, some of the things that we have that are in our possession can help us get to that place, right? Of feeling better. Um, and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Like I sometimes, and by the way, I am not a salon, but sometimes I just do my own nails, right? Because um, I haven't, I mean, I can count on one hand how many times I've gone since the pandemic. It's like crazy. I used to go all the time, like every other week or something. And it was like a time for me to kind of relax. I would read magazines, you know, I would just kind of chill out. And now it's like, oh my God, I have to go because I look like I have claws, you know? <laughs> so, um, so now, but it's like, now I'll get like these really fun colors. Like, oh, I love this color. I love this. I love this little accent. And, you know, I was talking to my partner the other day and he was like, you know, it's really important that you point out these little things that you see in people. Like they don't, you know, they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for themselves, but it's nice to point it out. And he said that he saw this woman and she had these really beautiful um, nail color. He's like, oh, I really love your nails. And he's like, and she just lit up. And, he, and it was because, you know, nobody's seeing us. We're behind we're in the house, right? We're like behind closed doors. We're on screens We're, you know, the quarantine period has really like sort of sucked out a lot of the uh, orgasmic vitality out of our lives, right? Like all of the, right? Like it's become this kind of mundane thing and it's like sanitized and it's like not sexy and we have to put that back in. And so I feel like all the things that you can do to like be evocative of pleasure and evocative of a sensuality or of of aliveness. And to me, that's what, you know, um, you know, you can express yourself through what you put on, right. Or you can, or you can accent through what you put on, right. Like I'm trying to evoke a sense of power or of, um, you know, um, I don't know, like beauty or nurturing or whatever it is I'm trying to like, you know, like, you know, live into or step into in this moment. Okay. Like I'm looking at like, Oh, I don't want to wear this color. I like put these, um, I have these hangers that go over these, um, I guess they're called dividers are these like cane dividers. And I put like, so I have like a, a really great trench tape that I have that I can't wait to wear. So I have that hanging. And then I have this other beautiful, like blue kind of very thin windbreaker coat situation that's really like high fat it's fashion it's not like gonna ever keep me warm but it's beautiful so I can't wait to wear that and I have that hanging then I have like one of my favorite robes hanging and so I just have like certain things like I think about certain colors I'm like I think I want to wear this tomorrow and I'll hang it right so I can see it and then in the morning I'll look and be like do I feel like this and then if I don't, then I pull other things and I hang them and then I see what comes up for me and feeling right about what I want to put on and then I'll, then I'll dress myself. Right. But I, but I feel like it's so connective. It's so coming back to how I want to be made to feel as I walk down the street or as I sit on the screen, right. How do I want to be made to feel? How do I want others to feel, you know, and also, what do I want to communicate? Do I want to communicate that um, this is a super relaxed and low-key environment and be in a hoodie? 
or do I want to communicate that this is a professional setting and, you know, I'm here to present something important and be in a blouse? You know, I think that there's certain things that just communicate differently. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with these garments. I love a sweatpant, you know, and I actually found a, a great pair that I fell in love with and I can't find them now. <laughs> They're like <laughs> lost in the house somewhere. And I'm like, where's my pants? You know, but I, but I, you know, but I'm not going to wear those to some place where like I have to make an impression, for instance, right? Um, one of the things I learned from my mom, you know, she said to me, you know, you always want to make sure you dress before you leave. She would always have these very like, you know, like bizarre reasons for why, but it'd be like, oh, you never know, right? You don't want to leave the house and not be dressed. You never know. I'm like, well, you never know what? And she's like, well, you, you know, you could get in an accident. And then I'm like, mom, if I got in an accident, like, you think I'm going to be worried about what I was wearing? <laughs> you know, so she would say things like that. But what she meant was, and this happened one day, that we were out and she said, make sure that you get dressed. And I was like, okay. And I, you know, put on something really cute and I went out with her and we ran into all these people we knew. And, um, and then we ran into like the celebrity that I was like so into at that age. I was a teenager. And she was like, see, <laughs> you know, this is, this is part of why. Like if you would have just thrown on whatever clothes, you would have been feeling self-conscious because it wouldn't have been the, the best expression of who you are and how you wanted to feel out in the world. So, you know, dress in that way. And so it sort of led to like this dress for the dreams you have, right? Even if you're not, you know, even if you're under-resourced or you're not at the space in your life where you're, you know, um, where you're feeling fully, um, like fully grounded in, in who you are or, or where you're at in your life. You know, if you're feeling sort of like you should be elsewhere or want to be elsewhere, like part of how we, um, cloak ourselves in, in fashions or in, in styles and in, in garments is to sort of speak to that which we are becoming, it's sort of fashioning ourselves as the rose already, right? It's like putting ourselves out there like that. So I think about it in, in those terms, not just in, you know, like looking cute and being stylish or whatever, but more like about like, how do I want to feel? How do I want to be received? What do I want to communicate about who I am through, through, through the most, um, you know, visual of mediums, right? And and most expressive is like through what I put on my body to adorn myself, right? And that's through how I style my hair, what jewelry I put on, any adornments, um, and then certainly the clothes, right? And so I think about it as a way to express and, and be more ourselves, especially because a lot of us grew up with people picking out our clothes, right? And other people deciding what we would wear. And, and in many cases, society deciding what we wear when we go into the workplace or other places. And so when you have the power to, right, to, to express, like, to me, it's a, it's a really um, potent way to um, show who you are, right, through, um, through this very powerful nonverbal statement, right, which is, um, you know, adorning yourself. Definitely. And I'm, and I'm in that process myself. I went to this yoga retreat um, for this summer and I saw this, um, 
this psychic healer and she told me I needed to connect more with the, my divine feminine. So now I'm kind of wearing dresses mm. more, which is, which is quite interesting. And uh, I was reading I in your that. book about womb festing. I love that concept of just um, kind of letting things happen. Because I've been very masculine in my life and all my all of my decisions, like taking control and being quite dominant. And now I'm kind of like just kind of being more passive and just letting receptive and all of that. And I read that in your book about womb festing, which I absolutely loved. And uh, speaking of books, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, man, this is a really good question. You know, I feel like there are a couple of books that um, at different points in my life meant different things, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Okay, so one book that I'm probably um, feeling most compelled by right now is um, Unbound by Tarana Burke, which is sort of about her journey to me, too. It just came out. And I feel like, you know, the raw, expressive um, nature of the storytelling and of her personal journey is so relatable. And so while I didn't have a similar experience to her, the the way that she languages and um, shares her, her journey is so powerful. Um, so I really love that book right now. But um, I think... There's a there's one book that I love called Parenting for Liberation, and I think that and I want to cite that book because, um, you know, I grew up in a family setting where respect was a very big thing, and you know, you listening to adult authority was a very big thing, um, you know, like the the Catholic Church. Oh yeah, just say also, that. Like, right? <laughs> Right. So it's like punitive. Right. It's like it's it's about like sort of like punishment about, you know, there guilt. wasn't like this kind of yeah, <laughs> guilt. There wasn't like this sinning thing because my mom wasn't really a practicing Catholic. My grandmother was. But but it was already I went to Catholic school. Right. So I was already indoctrinated in this sort of um you know, way of being. And, um, but, you know, with the backdrop of living in a home where there was a lot, it was strict and, um, you know, spankings were part of like the discipline. So I, when I became a parent, you know, my son's father and I talked about how we would discipline. And I told him, I was like, well, I was spanked like every day. So I was like 10, not because I did anything wrong, not because I was a bad kid, because relative to other children, by the way, I was really, I was trying to understand why I was getting spanked. And I was like, how come these kids aren't getting spanked? Like, why am I always getting beaten? And what I didn't realize is that it didn't have nothing to do with me. It was sort of, um, you know, my mother didn't have, I think the, the best, ways to approach like stress management and I think took out you know things on me that were like her own frustrations but ended up being like you could do a tiny thing and it could result in a spanking right or um so so it wasn't really like necessarily you were a bad kid it just kind of like it was you were in the wrong place at the wrong time for you know like her mood and um what was going on for her and I think if she had more support because she was raising me and my sister as a single mother. I think if she had more support uh, and, and um, better, I guess, coping mechanisms, you know, around the pressures of being a, a parent, a solo parent, 
that maybe she would have made different decisions around how she disciplined us, right? So this book was so amazing, Parenting for Liberation. Um, I think her, her name is Trina Green, who, who wrote it, is that she talks about these, the legacy of this type of, um, you know, caregiving and, you know, our communities, specifically in the Black community, um, a legacy of, um, of spanking, um, of, you know, like, and how that really stems from, you know, corporal punishment and, um, it's, it's sort of, sort of the outgrowth of, um, chattel slavery. And so it's, it's one of the worst, um, sort of remnants of that system, right. That still sort of lives on through our um, families generationally. And she talks about a way to be with your children that is not thinking them <laughs> and that is treating them as whole human beings. And, and so she sort of languages in the book, a lot of things that we believed but didn't have language for, you know, at the time when we were younger. Totally and, um, yeah. Right. I was given the wooden spoon, an Irish Catholic upbringing. So it was, uh, I don't, I don't know why a lot of the time, but there was a lot of um, wooden spoon against the back of the thighs and stuff, which was quite painful. Yeah. Yeah. I heard people who say they would have the spoon in the hand, like palm of the hand would be hit with the spoon. Um, yeah. There was like in our, in our um, family it was like a belt, you know, that you would get um, beaten with. So yeah. And then now I come to understand like, you know, as we all talk about this and I was watching a comedian the other day on television, he was talking about it and I'm listening and I'm like, everyone's sort of nervously laughing. And it's like, this is abuse. Absolutely. <laughs> right? So I think it, if we language it now, if we understand now, like we all sort of suffered abuse and, and, and I think if we can um, do it differently. And so I'm thankful that I haven't spanked my son. He's 18. I, I did not use that as a form of, of discipline, but I'm thankful also to find this book when I did to also usher other parents into a different way. And, you know, because I think a lot of people, when they talk about, you know, I never, by the way, had an instance where I felt like the answer would have been to thank my son. Like there, like he's been, he's such a great kid. Um, even in like, I would say his 13, 14, around 14, 15 probably was like the rough patch that we had um, where he's like sort of trying to stretch his wings a little bit. And there was a little bit of, um, it was like at, I think, yeah, 14 and 15, it was like a year, a little bit less than a year, but it was kind of around a year where he just had, um, uh, we had a rough patch, but even in that rough patch, which we came out of smooth sailing, um, there was nothing to, there was nothing to hit him for. You know what I mean? There was no, like, like, how do you reconcile, like beating someone? And so, um, and I can't imagine doing that. And so I feel so thankful that, um, that, that he doesn't have to like heal from or try to make excuses for me beating him or, or trying to, uh, rationalize that like she loves me, but she hits me because I think that as a child, it can really mess up the way that you navigate relationships with authority, the way that you navigate relationships with, with um, loved ones. You know, I think that if, you know, like having us sort of answer to authority and be beaten or hit with a spoon or hit with whatever it is, and then asking people who end up in relationships that are um, violent, 
you know, why can't you leave? It's like, these are things that we were taught really early, by the way, to accept, right? Oh, yeah. So it's really challenging for people to like, especially when you were beaten already to like be able to like stand up to someone who's abusing you or it's hard to see the difference, right? Like, and, and, and well, they do love me. I think that's love. Like, it's really hard when the frame and the people who are supposed to care for you are folks that are um, actually creating harm. So, so I just think that, you know, books like that are really powerful in us, um, you know, interrogating the ways in which we parent and uh, the ways that we were parented because it, it, gi- it gives like a lot of exercises around questions we should ask ourselves about how we were parented too, not just how we currently parent. And I thought that was really powerful because I think about, you know, the way that I, um, you know, show up as a parent and I'm constantly interrogating the ways I do things to try to be better. And, um, and I'm also looking at like the ways things were done to me and trying to like make sure that, okay, yeah, that wasn't really great. This was a really great thing though. I want to make sure I use that. This I want to make sure I leave behind. Right. And, 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 and do, do better, especially when we know better. Right. Like I think that's the best thing that we can do. And so, so yeah, I'm big, I'm big on, trying to um, make sure that people know resources like this exist so that we can just do things differently. And I'm grateful for what I see on social media because there's a lot of folks having these dialogues too about parenting and about different ways of being and, and, and understanding how a lot of us need to heal from the experiences that we had that would actually qualify as adverse childhood experiences. Definitely. And one last question, um, which phrase or affirmation or quote do you live by? Mm, that's a good one. I'm going to say embrace the energy of ease. Oh, that's nice. It's a very feminine, divine mm. feminine. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. 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 That's fantastic. It can be easy. It can be easy. Let's make it easy. <laughs> yeah. Because sometimes people, we, we learn through struggle, but it's nice to learn through ease, you know, and kind of like, <laughs> that's kind of not a nice yeah. way to go through life. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So thank you so much for, um, where can people find you before we finish? Where can people find you? Yeah, sure. So just mamaglow.com, M-A-M-A-G-L-O-W.com is where you'll find information about like, you know, doula support and trainings, birth services, really great content around birth um, and and just reproductive health and birth equity, like these issues all in general. Um, and then I'm on Instagram, Glow Maven, it's G-L-O-W-M-A-V-E-N. And then at Mama Glow on Instagram too, you can find a lot of stuff that we're doing over there too. So yeah, get in where you fit in. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's been a real pleasure and I really loved your book. So thank you so much for writing that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Thank you so much too. I really appreciate you and um, this time together. Yeah. The book I'm reading now is Dollars Want Me, The New Road to Opulence by Henry Harrison Brown. This book was first published in 1903 and it possesses lots of timeless wisdom about money. But it's actually a very small book. It's more like an essay than a book. In fact, the copy I have is only 28 pages long. So you can actually read it in one sitting. 
but it might be best to actually ingest this information over a longer period of time. And also, as it's so old and, and short, you can find many videos of it on YouTube with audiobooks and lots of information. So you can really kind of get this message of abundance into your mind. And I really love the emphasis on affirmations because I love affirmations. And also, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that it ends, every episode ends with some affirmations that I've created myself. And I really do believe that affirmations are like um, a consensual form of brainwashing to how to make your brain or your subconscious do better things for you, or you can evolve or grow that way for sure. I do like to review lots of books about money because it's a subject that really does interest me. And it's interested me now for a few years, ever since I got over my own abundance blocks. Let me just share a little exercise with you here. If you close your eyes for one minute and you imagine that money is a person, what kind of person do you see? Is it someone that you would want to spend time with? Is it someone who would want to spend time with you? Is it someone who's kind, manipulative, cruel? Do they exploit people? Just imagine money is a person and if that person is not someone you'd want to spend your time with, then maybe you might have some abundance blocks. Whereas if you imagine someone who is good, then it means maybe you have less problems or obstacles with money. And when I did this exercise, actually, I imagined an old man, kind of like a grandfather type, but very classic, for example, wearing a pinstripe suit and some half moon glasses, a three piece suit and a kind of one of those watches on his on his jacket, those old chain watches. And, but it was someone who was smiley and warm. And I thought that was the kind of person I would like in my life, someone who makes me feel protected and loved. Yeah, a little side note there. But anyway, money does uh, interest me a lot. So I've read a lot of books about kind of the, the mindset of money and the abundance frequency. What's missing in my life is actually the next stage, which is more about the practical implications or um, how to actually apply this knowledge, the practical application of um, this knowledge and how to actually use your money once you've acquired it and you understand how it all works, etc. So that's something I'm really working on right now. And also the, the, um, the way of investing is not something I wouldn't say that's such, it's not so timeless in that sense, because things, economy changes all the time. And um, yeah, so it's, uh, well, maybe some things might stay the same, but um, there are lots of changes, lots of new things happening. So it's difficult to know where to start. And also, I, I don't know of any single book that can help me get started on my investment journey, but I'm, I'm working on it in other ways. But anyway, back to this book, Dollars Want Me. I read it because I, it was recommended on a channel, um, I can't remember which one now, of the best money book. So um, I, I realized I'd read the rest and um, Dollars Want Me was something that I hadn't had on my bookshelf. And I, re I read it over the Christmas period. And I really did like it and I've underlined a lot of it. And I just do think it's going to be something I'm going to go back to a few times. And the, the key principle of this book is that you shouldn't be wanting dollars or craving dollars because want implies lack. You should 
dollars should want you because dollars are powerless unless they are used. So it's, it's kind of like the dollars should want to come to you because you're going to do good things with them. And that's the kind of, um, it's kind of like, uh, there's an example that's given like a honeypot. The flies come to the honeypot because they are attracted to it. The honey is not worrying about flies coming. And that's kind of the idea you want to, um, well, kind of express with this book. Anyway, let me just read a little bit here. Money represents supply. It stands in our thought for food, clothing and shelter, for books, pictures and companionship, for enjoyment, unfoldment and expression. Material supply is a necessity of life. The dollar is the concrete representative of this necessity. But the dollar also means opportunity for the realisation of high ideals. The individual must be free and, until the necessities of life are assured, he is not free. Which is very interesting. It's like kind of like that um, hierarchy of needs from Maslow. Once you have to get your basic needs covered before you can really grow in life, such as, you know, shelter, food, etc. Another thing I'm going to read to you here from, uh, from um, this book is, first, you must have something which the world needs and is willing to pay for. In this respect, you must follow the law of supply and demand. You must honestly feel that you will give the dollar's worth for every dollar that you desire. Secondly, you must, in all sincerity, dedicate every dollar that comes to you to noble service. You can then feel that dollars want you, that through them you can give what you have of value to the world. Feel that dollars wish you to use them for the accomplishment of your purpose, to use them justly. With this ideal, you can conscientiously invite dollars and they will come. They need your heart, brain and hand, and they may benefit the world." This is a really great way of looking at it because when some, sometimes with people who think money is bad, they assume that it's going to be used in a bad way, you know, to exploit people or just for material gain. Whereas those things um, are not really going to bring you happiness or bring good into the world. So for me, I just think that... Um, if I was um, a billionaire, I would be such a great philanthropist. And I'm not really um, a materialistic person. I don't really need, um, you know, flashy cars or or castles. That, that, that just kind of thinks, I just assume that'd be a lot of responsibility. And I, I like to have an ex, um, a simple life, really, but with nice experiences. That's what I'm aiming for. But I remember seeing the film, um, The Wolf of Wall Street, which I absolutely love that film. But it, seeing all the kind of waste of money, it was just a kind of, it kind of, it made me realize why people do have abundance blocks because I assume that people are going to be, you know, they've, they've assumed or accumulated that wealth through exploitation and then it's spent on crazy things like drugs and prostitutes and, you know, absolute indulgence and just maybe not the best way of spending money, you know. Well, I th so I think dollars should want me more because I have better ideas of what to do with them, definitely. Let me read you something else. And there's also an emphasis on affirmations. I'm going to read you a few of these affirmations um, from this book. I desire a deep consciousness of financial freedom. I desire that the flow of prosperity become equalized. I desire a constant success in my business. 
I have a deeper con consciousness of financial freedom. That's repeated. I am financially free. Dollars want me. I have whatever I desire. What I feel I need, that I purchase. I have clothes, food, books, entertainment, and whatever I need for health, happiness, friendship, and service to others, which is really the emphasis here, using that money to serve others. And that is Dollars Want Me by Henry Harrison Brown. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, take a deep breath and enjoy. Let go of people who no longer bring me joy. 
I wish them well, and I thank them for the lessons they have taught me. I accept where I am right now. I surrender. I am letting go. I embrace my potential and possibilities. I trust that everything will work out exactly how it's supposed to. I set myself free. I release myself from anything that is holding me back. I accept where I am right now. To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.